Welcome to the Cine Meh Podcast, a place to discuss and deconstruct perfectly average movies. Not good movies, not bad movies, just fine movies. So fine, in fact, you probably forgot they even exist. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. I'm Joshua. And while we may not be nearly as forgettable as these films, we probably run a close second. That's right. Adequate films for adequate folk. Josh, what do you got for me today? Welcome back, everybody. Did you miss us? Yeah, and it's it's been a couple of days. It's maybe a week or two here and there, you know. And uh, week or here's two or three. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't want to say that Battleship was such a bad movie that it sank my uh, feelings on on all oh of these. Oh my god, but... <laughs> let it go. Battleship is a, is an underrated masterpiece. <sighs> it was a. It was a. It was. It certainly was a movie, Josh. Battleship was a movie. It was a um, film. You know, I was recently in New York and okay. uh, with 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 my family, and we debated going to the uh, Intrepid Museum. Oh, okay. There in Manhattan. Yeah. And I was showing Parker uh, pictures of the Intrepid, and I was like, "It's an aircraft carrier," and he's like, "There's no way that's an aircraft carrier. It's way too small." And I was trying to explain to him, I was like, well, the ship is almost 100 years old. Like, right. it was different. It it, yeah. it carried, like, two planes. Uh, right. You know? <laughs> this is a much different kind of aircraft carrier than what we have these days. Yeah, I was like, one day, son, we'll, we'll sit down and watch Battleship and you'll understand. <laughs> uh, when I was... Because the reason that I was out and uh, and that we haven't recorded in a few weeks was I was uh, over in Europe. And actually, while in London, um, I was touring the tower of london and you look across the thames and there is this giant kind of hodgepodge pieces of battleship pieces of destroyer ship just sitting out in the harbor and it's hanging out in the thames yep just hanging out in the thames it turns out it's a museum as well and like you can you know learn about the history of british naval warfare on it i don't know it it looked so it looked very funny to me um, like it had been sort of chimeraed together, but I also understand that that's my thought process from like knowing what American ships look like. And so I'm wondering if it was actually a decommissioned, uh, like, you know, 1940s, 1950s British, uh, Royal Navy warship that, that has been turned into a museum. But <laughs> all I could think of was looking at it as like, Hey, that's battleship <laughs> that, yeah. that's- from, from now on, like any, like. Navy museum piece I come across, all I'm going to think about is, can I fight off aliens with Could this? Could I fight off aliens with this? Yeah. <laughs> is the sea ready today? Could, could, could we cast could off we... anchor and be out within 30 minutes or less? If the crew existed, could we float the sucker right out into the Atlantic and start fighting aliens? I, there's the, In San Diego, you know, along the bay in San Diego, there's yeah. all those ships yeah. just hanging there. Not Not just Navy ships, but I think there's like an old, like... 18th century schooner oh yeah uh out there i'll be like can we sail these <laughs> well this is a restaurant okay fine all right fine you 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 have a point there but everything else could it be safe <laughs> cook that steak well done throw it <laughs> uh before we get into uh today's film uh, just yeah. a little bit of uh, cinema news wonderful um the uh there was a new trailer released for godzilla minus one which is the <laughs> Japanese uh, Godzilla film that's coming out next month. The one with the the chonky legs. Chonky, yeah, chonky legs. But uh-huh. I mean, he, he he's got a bit more um, mobility. Okay. Than, than previous. Uh, okay. Yeah, previous Japanese Godzillas, and that's exciting. Uh, but he does have this weird thing with his spines that I don't know what I feel about. I feel like it's vaguely Gundam esque. Okay. And I'm not sure <laughs> that I love it. Is it? Yeah, I mean, I, like his his spines charge him up in the new, like the current Godzilla yeah. meta, or at least the current American Godzilla meta. Is it sort of like that? Well, in because in a lot of uh, the later iterations of Godzilla, you knew he was about to blow because the the spine would would light up and signal, yeah. and like you're like, oh, he's about to, you know, heave ho. Uh, this takes it's, it like a little step further. Okay, and it looks oddly mechanical. <laughs> I don't know that I love that part, but we'll see. Uh, but in breaking cinema news, uh, Ryan mm. from the studios that make really dumb, fantastic movies, uh, we're getting a Barbenheimer film. What? We're getting a Barbenheimer film. It has got a budget of one million dollars. Oh my god! <laughs> and 
and I think it is going to be fantastic. It might rival Battleship for uh, best modern cinema. I don't know that this is a victory for cinema. Like I, I, I know we've had the conversation recently about like where are the mid-budget films, and this right falls there. on the low end, but mm-hmm. certainly a mid-budget film. I don't know that this is the mid-budget film that we're asking for, Josh. Well, this is the kind of crap we're going to get until uh, the studios and unions come to an agreement and start making like <laughs> actual <decent>. movies again. <laughs> yes, you will get random stuff like Barbenheimer. Did, this did is the problem see- with memes? It is well, and that's and no, the problem. It's it's not a problem with memes. It's a problem with the old people that think that memes are serious, right? Like, yes, let's all remember how Sony re-released uh, Morbius into because, because of it's Morbin time. Yes, yes, they they thought like that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, right. Like, Never forget if something is memed, it's it it means it's it means it's being taken. It's not being taken seriously. It's fundamentally not being taken seriously. Um, so like, I, I, I mean, I guess it's a little bit different with like the, the quote unquote, like the Barbenheimer craze. Cause I did see Barbie and Oppenheimer. I think they were two great movies that came out this last summer. Um, but it's not like people were actually asking for a crossover film. It was just a really odd cross section of, uh, not independence, not the right word, but like non, um, franchise movies to come out, you know, where people are like desperate for, uh, originality again. There's, these are two original movies that came out this summer and they were just sort of oddly contrasted to one another and it was a hilarious thing to go and watch them back to back. Well, I mean, let's let's withhold judgment until... on Let's withhold judgment on the Barbenheimer film? Yes, it could be quietly brilliant. You know you know what? I've been proven wrong before, so... It's, it sounds like a riff on Frankenstein, so... Oh, interesting. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm basing it purely on the title... Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I have no, <laughs> I have no understanding of what this movie will be. But I'm just Got like, it. if it. you take elements of Oppenheimer, you're taking elements of Barbie. Uh, I'm someone who's never seen. I've not seen either film. Oh, really? So, but I'm like, take elements of that, and uh, you know, uh, it sounds it sounds like a, a Frankenstein scenario. They were both great for different reasons. Yeah, both terribly adult movies, um, which I think Barbie was miss. Uh, um, marketed in that way. I think I, I think they, they marketed the Barbie movie incorrectly for what it actually ended up being, but um, Oppenheimer, you knew exactly what you were fucking getting, and uh, tremendous movie. Um, all right, well, that's enough about... Um, <laughs> let's, let's get into... Yeah, let, let's talk about our film for the day. Uh, Calling Dick Tracy. Um, yeah, so our, our movie today is Dick Tracy from 1990, starring Warren Beatty, Madonna... Al Pacino, um, and actually kind of a rogues gallery of other like uh, really interesting cast members. There's um, there's a really, really strong cast in this film. There's a there's a lot of blink and you will miss it uh, people in this movie. Like these are, uh, you know, some of these are just like glorified cameos. Yeah, um, like William Forsyth, who plays a chilling villain in this movie, um, is uh, you you almost wouldn't even recognize him because of the way that he's done up as uh, as flat top. And um, I, I mean, the one that like I think still to this day, because he's he's like almost he's not he's not listed among the cast is Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles. That's very interesting to me is that he's not listed because he like it's very clear He's one of the easier ones to see through the the makeup. Yeah. No, and I'm like, is this his? Was this before or after Rain Man? Uh oh, this has got to be after Rain Man was like 1988, wasn't it? I'll, okay. I'll look it up real quick. Okay, because I was like, I think he's cheating a little bit, and he's bringing a little. Of his, <laughs> yeah, very... Rain, Rain Man was 88. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, but yeah, uh, James Caan, uh, Call Meany, yes, Catherine O'Hara has is uh, Trixie, I think. Yep. Um virtually like unrecognizable and uh yeah and the list goes on like you just like oh my gosh this is the one that i wild. always miss is james tolkien is the accountant he's numbers um oh and, like, yeah yeah and, and because james tolkien you're so used to him playing like such a hard ass that um he he just sort of like disappears into that role and it, it, yeah I, every time i go back and rewatch this movie i'm like this is a stacked cast and it is a stacked cast of very like 
strong players who you're used to seeing in like heady action roles. And uh, it's it's really, really interesting the way that it comes together in this film. And then you're topped out with uh, Warren Betty. Yep. He uh, plays Dick Tracy, also directed the film. I think he was a producer for the film. Yeah, he, the film. He, had, he had full hand on the wheel for this movie. We can come back to that. Yeah, um, it, it, it represents something that happened a couple of times during this era where the actor also became the writer, also became the producer, also became the director, and it worked to varying degrees of success, but we'll, we'll touch on that later. Uh, the, the music comes courtesy Danny Elfman. Yes. Uh, as well as the musical numbers done by Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, um, it, which is kind of... Uh, <laughs> it's it, it gives this whole movie... I think because like the early 90s had this sort of like strange... Um, gritty grittiness to like some of its musicals. Like I, th- I think of Cats and I think of um, the the Phantom of the Opera, which are are Sondheim. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's <laughs> there's a sort of interesting nature to it where it all sort of feels very homogenous, and I end up thinking um, I always end up thinking that this is a uh, Tim Burton film because there is sort of this like. Uh, grain of it all I, I don't know um I always mistake this for a Tim Burton movie because of the music because of the the look uh yeah well Tim Burton I think was one of the various people approached to do this movie yeah uh, because it, it this looks like a development hell is ridiculous yes yeah this movie's development hell is, is wild um I I just uh, I had a moment because I was like I had to fact check you because you were like family opera Stephen Sondheim I was like hold on that's Andrew Lloyd Webber oh shit it is but the Weber. film the yes. film. <laughs> okay, thank was you. Sondheim. Thank you. Yep. So. Yep. Thank, no, no, no. That, <laughs> thank you for correcting that. Yeah. I was like, uh, even as I was saying, I was like, wait a second. Am I right about this? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, Tim Burton was approached to do this and he didn't because he was working on Edward Scissorhands. Ah, okay. Um, but he would have just done Batman. Yep. With uh, Danny Elfman. Again, Danny that Elfman. Music. Um, you know, these artistic backdrops are right. very similar. Can I? Okay. Where does this movie take place? So if if the movie takes place in the same place as the film strip, it it's like a fictionalized version of Chicago. Okay, because it's cityscape. Sometimes it looks like Chicago. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it looks like New York City. Mm-hmm. Like there are certain iconic things. And uh, when I was just looking up, it looks like the 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 it's a fictional city in the comic strip okay. that's supposed to be heavily based on Chicago on but Chicago. the film is very much doing kind of an amalgamation they're like it's a it's a city and it's it's an urban place in 1930s that's what you need to know well and in 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 that way there's there's an aspect of this that kind of reminds me of um streets of fire where streets of fire it's not really they they don't ever come out and say this is where the movie takes place it sort of takes place in a fictional the big city um, yep. But it has that same feeling that this could be New York City, this could be Chicago. Um, it's just never, it, it's just never out and out said. Um, and I, it, that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting tool that gets used uh, in that there, like people like to take elements of those two cities and sort of smash them together. I always think of Gotham, is kind mm-hmm. of like halfway between New York City and and Chicago. Um, and uh, it, it just it makes me wonder, like, what's not good enough about just Chicago as a setting? What's not good enough about New York City as just a setting, especially given the the history of those two cities and especially with Dick Tracy being based heavily on the prohibition gangsters of the 1920s. Chicago was like it was the crossroads for all of that bullshit. So, like, why was Chicago not good enough as just the raw setting for this film? Well, I think both Chicago and New York. Uh, they they both have these like glamorized mob legends. Yeah, you know, but I, they were similar yet very different. Well, and and so the uh, the glamorized mob legend, and actually just the <clears throat> the mob films of the nineteen thirties. Um, actually, so one of the, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about surrounding this film because uh, the the movie itself is is oddly mid. Like it's it's almost like so nondescript considering how stunning it looks. 
that Ryan, I think this is the first film that we've done that I had such a non-opinion about. Right. It's it's like when you look at it, this movie should be striking. Like every time I I watch this movie, I want to be blown away by it because I think it looks incredible. The art direction is fucking fantastic. Everything else about this movie, I'm like, I, I don't I don't know what to say about it. Like, it's a gangster movie. And like I mentioned before we started recording, if you've seen something like The Public Enemy, um, you've basically seen this movie, right? Like, it it borrows plot beats from all the 1930s gangster films um, that, you know, made guys like James Cagney really famous um, that glamorized this, you know, uh, this sort of um, setting. But it just, it takes the tact of, instead of the, the mobsters being the heroes or, you know, who were who were like rooting for it's it, we, we have a, a, a detective, um, you know, fighting back against that kind of thing. But like, it, I don't know, there, it, there's there's something so nondescript about this movie. What, what, what tell me your thoughts? Well, so let's rewind a quick second. Uh, okay. This film, Dick Tracy, is inspired by the comic strip by Chester Gould. Yep. That started, I want to say, in 1931. Yes, 1931. It was a it was a comic strip, not a comic book, um, but it was a running comic strip in the newspaper, and um, some newspapers to this day still do reprints of some of these long form comic strips, where it's not a a three or four panel thing, not necessarily a three or four panel comic right. strip. It might take up like half a page or something, right? And if it's the Sunday paper, then you got like even more story. Yeah, but. It was a a story that you'd have to check your paper each day to get the next little like half snippet of the scene. It's like like picture like picture reading the show twenty four, um, right? <laughs> yeah, and and, and 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 there's there's almost a um, like a soap opera nature to this, which was something that like especially yes. when when we get into the romances between Dick Tracy and Tess Trueheart or um, Breathless Mahoney, like it it did play out very much. Less like a, a crime drama and more like a soap opera. Um, and in like you said, every panel would basically leave off sort of mid-action just to be able to lead you into picking it up tomorrow so that you don't miss a thing. It's interesting because Dick Tracy predates uh, a bunch of pulp heroes. Yeah. Uh, people like Doc Savage, people like The Shadow, which I'm I'm going to actually try to draw a few comparison contrasts with the Shadow film that we discussed last season. Great. Um, because those films are made like four years apart and they're vastly similar yet different. And right at the midst of all of them, the superior of all three was The Phantom, which also was that era. And I, th- I think that The Phantom is the best of these three movies. Um, that's my personal opinion. Um, but... Uh, they all share a very similar origin. So Dick Tracy is a cop. He's yeah. not a private eye, which is no, he's, also interesting. Yeah, he's a cop. You think about the age of, of, of film noir and like a lot of these uh, mob criminal like gangster types of stories, they'll feature a morally nebulous uh, good guy in the terms of your, your private eye. Uh, but Dick Tracy is an actual cop. Yes. He is a detective. He is a, he's called Dick, which is his original. Originally, the 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 strip was pitched as plainclothes Tracy. Yeah, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. It doesn't. No, <laughs> but uh, it, like Dick Tracy isn't a. It's not shorthand for Richard Tracy. It it's a riff on the fact that like the the like one of the the terms for detectives was a a, a Dick or a Gumshoe, um, you know, or a plainclothes, uh, and so it was just a. A, a different take on plain clothes. So. Well, you can't run around in a bright yellow fedora and <laughs> trench coat and be called plain clothes. Plain, oh, plain clothes. Yeah, he does kind of stick out, doesn't he? The, the color palette on this film. It's wild. Yes. It's also a direct riff from the comic strip. Yes. Uh, because these were all iconic colors used in the strip. Yes. And I was like, okay, but is that one of those things that you need to faithfully adapt? For Dick, Tracy, Maybe. Yes, like that's kind of iconic. But do you need all the other ones? I I think that's a really interesting question um, because you know one of the things obviously that I thought about watching this was the would I like this better if it wasn't Dick Tracy, 
um, which is going to be a fascinating question to, to come back to at the end. But this is a moment of um, where oftentimes we've said with our, our IP season, they didn't stick close enough, right? Like, why didn't you just do what you had right in front of you? This might be one of those moments where it's like y- you stuck a little too close to your... You stuck, you stuck too close. Right. Like, you, you, you tried to too accurately put this on screen, and it comes off in sort of a jarring way. Uh, so here's my here's my criticism of this movie. Go for uh, it. Okay, well, hold on. One sentence recap. Uh, this film follows Dick Tracy as he battles the mob and tries to figure out what he wants going forward in his career. Does he choose career over over family? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, and and I would say like the, the the underlying nuance of this is that he is chasing one villain when kind of a bomb thrower shows up in the blank. And it's clear that there is another player in town now. Well, and that was something that's that is something that the plot does that is kind of interesting is it yeah. opens you're you're the opening you are introduced to the status quo and the status quo is immediately upset in a scene that I think is probably very much inspired by the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Yes. Um, because uh, all the established powers get literally blown to hell. Yes. And you have a new power broker on the scene, courtesy of Al Pacino's big boy Caprice. Big boy Caprice. God, I love him so much. He is my favorite part of this movie. He is fantastic. And I'm like, Pacino, Pacino doing something that like, I, would you call it a serious role? I don't necessarily call it a serious role. No. And this is the thing. If I think if the whole movie had played out, if everybody had been able to play their role the way that Pacino plays Big Boy, I think that this movie would have been fundamentally more interesting because he, he I, and, and maybe this is just a credit to his talent as an actor, he is able to play extremely sinister as Big Boy when he needs to. But then he, he'll flip to things like, all's fair in love and war, Benjamin Franklin. Um, oh, and his misquotes. His misquotes, <laughs> right? Like it, that little that uh, little what was nuance. The Thomas Jefferson one. I don't remember. Uh, that, I, but, it was... <laughs> but he's constantly misquoting, and so it it undercuts the genius of his his villain, right? Like he's supposed to be this you know big minded villain, but it's clear that he's just a thug. And and in that way, I, I like I said, I think that his performance is the most interesting, and I think he most accurately captures what the comic was, which was gritty, hardcore gangster violence interspersed with like dark humor and just sort of like this kind of weird funniness about it. Like that's why the villains were never presented as like people; they were presented as these really grotesque, uh, like gruesome looking uh, the caricatures. Are are astounding, crazy. Yes, just wild. Um, and I think he's the only one that manages to capture that energy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a little jarring to see in its film adaptation, um, which is funny because you can look at the comic strip that they're based off of, and you're like, yeah, that works, that makes sense, and y- yeah, you can buy into it in that medium. But then the way it translates over to the film, I'm like, why? are all the bad guys horribly disfigured? Like, what? What? what is this? This is absurd. This is over the top. It, it is. And it's obviously, you know, in the, the context of the comic, it's, it's a commentary on not trying to put a clean face on villainy, right? Like, that's, that's, that's the metaphor that, that they're going for, is that crime should not be attractive. Because there was this era of films in the 1930s where... Um, like the 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 Cagney films, the uh, who's the who's the guy that played Little Caesar? Um, there's there's a couple of actors in in the 1930s and 1940s that that like you were saying glamorized the the mob uh, the the prohibition gangster, and I think that this is a direct pushback against that. It's putting an ugly face on crime, but it looks really fucking weird on screen. And like I, I mentioned prior to, to recording. The longer you sit with this movie, the more it feels like it trends into an uncanny valley where it's like I I'm sort of uncomfortable with what I'm looking at. Like, I I don't know why, but there's something that's like visceral about continuing to see these these very strange faces pop up again and again and again. That just doesn't feel right. I I struggled with how seriously I was supposed to take this movie. Yes. Because of uh, the, the makeup and the art direction. Yeah. And uh, mostly, mostly acting is very straight. 
Yes. <laughs> like um, Warren Beatty plays this role serious as a heart attack. Yes, he, he is very straight. The the cops are hella Irish, which was I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> that, um, that was a that was maybe a bit too like meta. <laughs> a, a, a bit a bit on the nose, but like yeah. that was that was that was a thing at the time. Yeah. Uh, again, were they more Irish in? I think they were more Irish in New York than in Chicago. But I, I don't think know. So. We're in a weird uh, amalgamation verse. Yeah. Yeah. I I I I'd be curious to look into that. Yeah. But yeah, but they're all extremely Irish except for. Tracy for Tracy, yeah. Um, which why didn't he have uh, the nose? Oh, sure. Dick Tracy's got a big hawk nose, kind of like the shadow, and and he he also has like an iron square jaw, like like the Judge Dread jaw. And yeah. uh, I mean, like, I didn't mind that part so much, but the nose definitely should have been a more <laughs> like hooks. I've been in a street fight and my nose didn't heal right. Nose, it should have been. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, it's, it, it is interesting that, that everybody kind of ends up looking like their character except for Tracy and the good guys. Um, which I think is the point is like I, the, yeah. the bad guys are disfigured. Yes. Yeah. But disfigured in really like fundamentally interesting ways. Um, and uh, the one that I, I think I would love to see done again with modern technology just because I think it'd be really fascinating to see this executed correctly was Babyface, because the whole idea of Babyface was that he had a an adult sized head, but the face like an infant sized face in the middle yeah. of it, and obviously they they didn't have the technology to pull that off back then, so they could only do close shots of him, where it was very clear it was a giant head around an adult face. Um, I, I like that. It's a character that I, I just want to see done in an updated version because I think that it would look terribly cr- creepy if you did it right. Yeah. But again, so much work put into all those characters in that opening scene that die immediately. The, gone immediately. Like shoulders, I think, dies immediately. Um, the uh, uh, baby face dies immediately. There's there's a whole like, rogues gallery of villains that are just. I was, I was just about to gone. say, this is all from. Chester Gould's uh, Dick Tracy Rogues Gallery mm-hmm. um, from over the decades of the comic strips. Like these are all very distinctive right. characters that played their role, and in the film they could just get wiped out so quick. It's uh you know it, it, Dick Tracy is is a he's a nod to Elliot Ness yes, and this story is very much kind of a nod to um you know like the pursuit of some of these big time mobsters like Al Capone right um. And I especially do love the scene where he goes to raid the club. They get the tip off, so they flip the tables, flip the walls, everything, like all the illegal shit just disappears. Yep. It's uh, it, that's fantastic because it, that was uh, that was a thing. Maybe not that smooth cartoonish because but like this is a movie, but like this is this is how people were skirting the laws during prohibition, right? Mobster times. Yeah, and and the the nod to Elliot Ness, um, like chasing Capone again, puts this movie in odd company with something like Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, mm-hmm. um, which was a much more serious take on the mob violence of uh, the nineteen twenties and thirties, um, and it's it, that's one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, but it, you you can see the parallels between these two movies. Um, and and it just it it makes Dick Tracy look stranger and stranger the more that you you compare it to some of its contemporaries. It's a it's a unique film, honestly. For being called Dick Tracy, this movie is not really about Dick Tracy. Uh, he does not grow or develop no. as a character. Everybody is very straight throughout the film, and not a lot changes. Like I. I they and you see the mirror um or not the mirror but the, the the repeat of the conversation in the diner him and Tess at the beginning of the movie trying to approach taking that step and maybe mm-hmm. getting married and then uh at the end we're right back there there's a little more understanding across all parties but still um they haven't really changed i would argue this movie is about breathless i i think that's i think that's actually 100% true I think this Breath- is Breathless Mahoney's story. Breathless Mahoney played by Madonna. Pretty another person capably. who... She does it fantastic. She yeah. is wonderful in this movie. 
she is femme fatale slash damsel in distress uh, slash sexy as hell dangerous. <laughs> yeah, she um, she actually kind of nails this role. Uh, and it, it makes me wonder if like it would have been interesting to see Madonna in more roles like this. I, I fear that she would have gotten typecast, but this would have been a good jumping off point for an acting career for her. If she'd had more roles like this uh, at first available so that she could develop acting chops and then move into, you know, other, other things. But uh, I, I don't hate Madonna in this role. I, she doesn't come across as wooden or stilted. I think she kind of nails it. A breathless is amazing because mm-hmm. like here you have a character who is, stuck like this and this is the one that we feel for really throughout the film yeah is this is a character that's stuck she's being passed from power broker to power broker and she is trying to find her way out she's trying to make it work and figure out how to get out of this and she wants dick tracy to be her white knight but he won't do what she needs him to do and Which she is, tries and she, and, she crawls across his desk <laughs> so great. I mean, it's it, it, it is it's the one thing that that does kind of separate um, Tracy from the hard boiled private eye, right? Is that their moral nebulousness would have allowed them to just go basically on a killing streak and be like, "All right, if I need to take out these gangsters to to set you free, I'm going to do whatever I need to 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 end the corruption in this in this damn city." Whereas Dick Tracy is still bound by the law. Like he's almost a Batman in that way. Like he has rules that he won't break. And um, at the end of the day, if he doesn't have the evidence to bring a criminal in, he can't just like they they actually show that uh, very well at the beginning where he just goes and arrests Big Boy and they let him out almost immediately because like you've got you've got nothing to make this arrest stick. Yeah. Even though, you know, you know, you know, right. Exactly. Even though, you know. Uh, yeah, so she <clears throat> has to take matters into her own hands and becomes uh, the blank. The blank. And really just stirs shit up. Which, insofar as frightening villains go, the blank is kind of nightmare fuel for me. Like, oh, yeah, just just a no no face. No face, that kind Athlete of... mechanical voice. Yeah, that very weird, gurgly voice. The the blank is actually kind of frightening. Um and uh, <laughs> like, uh, I, I remember, um, I actually remember being surprised by the blank's turn at the end. And, and I was a kid, as a kid too. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh shit, this was Breathless Mahoney the whole time. Um, but as an adult, going back and looking at it, that is such a, it, it's such a tried and true riff from the hard boiled detective like storyline that I can recognize it as being not as original as I thought it was as a child. Sure, you know, but the first time you see this movie, if you're not familiar with like that whole film genre, that probably does come across as a shock. You're like, what? this was the bar singer. Um, and uh, but then as you put it together, you're like, actually kind of makes sense. She does know who all the, the power brokers are. She knows exactly when they're going to be meeting and and how to go after them. And so she knows how to throw a wrench into all their works. Um, but it, she has to take on this different identity in order to, to do it. And then, you know, tragically, she dies. Accomplishes her mission, but she dies. And um, it's just a very sad moment because she's just like, you're the only one for me, Tracy. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Um, But then a couple years later, we get Batman Returns uh, with the, and we get to explore the Catwoman-Batman dynamic, which is essentially what this is. What the Blank and Dick Tracy kind of have going on. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, just he will not cross into into that world, and otherwise they would be perfect for each other, right? And, and it's it, it is an interesting dynamic to explore from that that standpoint. And I I, I don't know why it doesn't feel. I think I, I think you don't feel that tension in this movie strictly because we're not aware that it's Breathless Mahoney until the very end. Um, whereas the the Batman Catwoman dynamic works better because we can see the two characters interacting and understanding like the push and pull of their lives. Um, the blank when we'll call it it, because you have no idea what the blank is at first when the blank, when it first shows up, it just looks like a bomb thrower into this already very messy scene of, uh, you know, power trading dynamics in, in the mob world. Um, it looks like somebody that just wants to push big boy out and, and take over. 
um, not understanding what its its actual motivations really are. The this is a movie that at times it looks like a film, and at times it looks like a stage production. Yes, and I think it's because of the absurd makeup, the um, literal song and dance numbers, uh, <laughs> but like the color palette, the um, very obviously painted uh, scenic backdrop. Right. Which again, I was like, this feels like it's all done intentionally. Yeah. Um, but it's I, like the plot itself is just so flat. It is. There's, it's, there's no, it, there's no real, I, I have no sense of worry for anyone during the course it, of this movie. I, I, and this is, this has been my big gripe this whole season is what are the fucking stakes? What are the stakes in this movie? And in this movie does a, a very poor job of establishing stakes at any point. Um, like you said, there's, there's never a sense of danger. I don't ever feel worried about Tracy. I don't ever feel worried about Tess Trueheart. I maybe feel worried about Breathless Mahoney sometimes, but sh- because we know her to be, you know, a charismatic player who can just sort of like be flexible to whoever is the power broker around her. She's going to be very flexible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't help it. That's what her character was designed for, okay? I, I know. Comments I, like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but ultimately, you're you're never you're always like she'll find a way out of it, right? Like you're so, um, yeah. There's there is a complete lack of stakes in this film, and uh, and I think that that's part of what plays out in why it's such a flat movie, despite having incredible visuals. And and there there are even moments in this film that I remember just looking like stunning and, and tremendous like the the um near the end with tracy walking down the street firing the tommy gun with the explosions going off around him that's a fucking cool moment like it just looks neat like that whole gun battle where um flat top uh and um his his other associate uh end up getting killed um where it's just that that big machine gun fight in in the streets that's a really cool moment. Um, it's it, it's an action moment that I think doesn't really it doesn't it's not earned, but it looks really neat. Um, well, that was a staple of like gangster films too. Exactly, is it, have this obnoxious Tommy gun fight in the middle of the street where there's way too many bullets, nobody reloads, and um, people yeah. might get hit. And this is a this is a perfect harkening back to that, and I and I think I love it because it feels like a tribute to those movies. But then it's that's such an isolated moment that I remember vividly. Everything else about this this film is um, wildly forgettable. Yeah, I think as a kid, um, when I was really little, I think I would confuse this movie with Roger Rabbit. Oh, easily, mm-hmm. easily, yeah. Um, because Breathless Mahoney almost has a Jessica Rabbit <laughs> sort of uh, feel to her. She does, uh, and, and which and fun with, fact, uh, a Roger Rabbit short opened okay. this film. Oh, did theaters. it really? Yeah, that that tracks, Josh. <laughs> that tracks. Well, they're both Disney films. This is a Disney right. movie, which you're like, oh, I think like I think it's I think it was under Touchstone, right, at the time of its release, but like it's a it's a Walt Disney picture, and it sort of looks like it. Well, at times, but you would also be like. Disney's, Disney's making this movie? It's a little dark for a, a Disney film. I, I mean, in the same way that, like, The Rocketeer is a little dark, but that was a Disney movie, right? Yeah, that's true. And, and like, The Rocketeer has the um, the the one thug that has the melted face that you're clearly, like, they just reused whatever they had left over from Dick Tracy on this guy. <laughs> um, I think this movie really suffered from being in development hell for roughly a million years. And... Uh, it just it changed so many hands. They tried to get so many people on this before, like Warren Betty, and Warren Betty's like, "Yeah, I'll direct it, but I also want to be Dick Tracy." And they're like, "Well, okay, we haven't cast anybody for that yet, anyway." So sure. And Warren Betty is all over this movie, and a lot of people's commentary about this movie involves Warren Betty. Warren Betty. <laughs> well, so so I want to I want to contrast this because. Um, <clears throat> Another movie came out in uh, around this era that suffered from similar issues that I think is a um, a, a triumph of a film, um, and that's Tombstone. And something that's interesting about these two movies, um, Dick, Tace, Dick Tracy and Tombstone, is that they were part of a strange resurgence in the late 80s, early 90s 
of film serials that were extremely popular in the 30s and 40s that had died out, those being gangsters and westerns, right? Like those were the crux of American cinema for a long time. Um, and then they completely went away by the 60s and 70s. Um, 70s like was the very tail end of the Western with like the spaghetti Westerns and in, in, uh, in that sort of that era. Gangster movies were gone by the 40s and 50s. And we had a number of movies come out in the early 90s, late 80s that were a, like a strange sort of resurgence of this where we had like Wyatt Earp and you had Elliot Ness, you had The Untouchables, you had Tombstone, you have Dick Tracy, um, The Phantom, The Rocketeer, uh, The Shadow, all of these based on like these gangster and Western serials of the, the 30s and they had a, they popped back in. Um, but they were all troubled development. Like none of them really went off without a hitch. And Tombstone and Dick Tracy are the two that I kind of want to set next to each other because Tombstone ended up being a, almost 100% headed by Kurt Russell. Even if he won't admit to it to this day, everybody says Kurt Russell was the director on Tombstone. Warren Beatty makes no excuses about the fact that he owned Dick Tracy. And these movies turned out terribly differently because Tombstone, I think, is a fucking excellent movie. Dick Tracy, not so much. Didn't this movie get some award nods, though? Probably. At the for, time, I think it did. But, like, it, I, I think for the same reason that, like, Avenger movies get awards nods, right? Like, it's, it, it, it's like, for, like, the visual effects or the sound design or, or some stuff like that. Like, it's not, it, it oh, wasn't the yeah. performance or the writing. It was everything that went on around it. Because, again, this movie looks stunning. That yeah. does not translate to a great movie. It looks good. It sounds good. Right. Um, you know, whoever casted... Uh, the kid who would later go on to do uh, Jack in Hook. Uh-huh. And now is a law professor. Like, he pivoted entirely. Oh, wow. Um, That's interesting. Yes. Uh, but, it, like, I see him. I'm like, I've seen you somewhere before. <laughs> yeah. He He's did like, a couple yeah, of- I, I get off this set and I go over and do Hook. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <Got it>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who do you like more? Robin Williams or... Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty. <laughs> Is it a that's, contest? That's probably an easy question. Well, it's Dustin just, Hoffman was probably his, I was, like I was just going to say like, there's adult. There's an odd link between the two and Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. <laughs> Dustin was probably like, oh, I'll take you over there. I'll take yep. you between sets, kid. No I'll take more. you between sets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Hook's a dynamite film. Hook is a great film. Hook, I, I don't understand why people don't like Hook. That's a wonderful I, movie. I well maybe we'll talk about Hook one day. Maybe we'll talk about Hook one day. Anyway, Warren Beatty having his fingerprints all over Dick Tracy, and he can't let it go. Like to this day, he's right. just like Dick Tracy is mine. Yes, and Disney's like, well, Dick Tracy's ours actually. He's like, oh yeah, you want to fight? And like he he's basically just. It seems like he's constantly in a tiff with Disney over uh, Dick Tracy, right. and I'm like, it's Dick Tracy, dude. <laughs> like just. Like it's fine, but it's no, it's 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 no Batman. It's no, it's it, no the Shadow. It makes me wonder how personally he took the way this movie was received, because um, again, it, it, his his contemporary in this in this space with um, Kurt Russell, who like basically Shadow directed Tombstone. Kurt Russell, I kind of get the sense from like what I read in interviews with him, and just you know what I hear in his his commentary on on films. I think Kurt Russell just sort of likes being in movies and I don't think he has any more ego to him than, than that. He just thinks it's fun to be in movies. Whereas Warren Beatty, I get the sense thinks of himself as like an artiste and he, I think had incredibly high expectations for what this movie would become. And not a single one of them was realized Um, beyond the movie looked great, but it's not, it's not a movie that people remember. It's um, going back to your your point about um, revisiting these these genres. You know, we know yeah. Hollywood goes through these cycles, yep. and we're we're still currently in the age of the superhero. Though I think it's fading away. It's waning. Yeah, it it is fading away, and um, I don't think you're able to do a mom movie if it's not Martin Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> Who was another person that was approached for Dick Tracy. What a different movie that would have been. It would have been remarkably different. It would have been about three hours long. Robert (laughs) Nero would have probably been Dick Tracy. And it was um, 
but yeah, it, it would have been think about it. It would have been an entirely different film. And, and and based on the conceit itself and the like the way that Dick Tracy as a as a comic strip approached crime and social issues um, in that it, it did it with a lot of tongue in cheek humor um, while being kind of graphically violent, uh, which was something that the comic strip was constantly criticized for was the violence. And it was Gould would say in interviews if I if I remember correctly that like this was supposed to be kind of cartoonish in that way like there's a there is a Roger Rabbit-ness to like the violence of Dick it's Tracy supposed to be over the top right exactly it's yeah. you know the mouse drops a battleship on a cat uh kind of thing right like it's it's a cartoon um <clears throat> but it does make me wonder like how well Warren Beatty understood that versus how well somebody else with actual directing panache would have understood it. Like, would um, Scorsese's version of this have been, we're going to fully abandon the cartoon aspect of it, and we're going to tell a serious mob story, but, like, tone down the violence and bring a little more realism to it? Or would he have been like, no, we really, really kind of need this to be a complete absurdity, Um and find a way to pull a, uh, a social or uh, a political message out of all of that. And, and it's essentially like a, a satire in that way. I, I don't know if I would be on board, though, if he axed the yellow hat and coat. I'm like, I can't. Then you're not Dick Tracy. I think, Dick Scorsese, Tracy. I think Scorsese would have. You think he would have gotten rid of it? I do. Um, I, 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 could, I wouldn't watch it. Right. <laughs> I know it's it's iconic, like you said, but uh, the part of what's like iconic about it was also the fact that like color printing was a fairly new idea, and they had a very limited color palette, like you were saying, and that color palette became part of what was iconic about the Dick Tracy uh, comic strip because it it looked so striking. Um, but you know, like when your printer runs out of color ink and you have to go get these like weird like magenta yellow and like a green and you're scion like, five scion five yeah exactly you're like why and it turns out that those are the base colors for all color printing and that is the, the, that's the color palette of dick tracy <laughs> yeah it's those, it's those three colors <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh i would be curious to get uh, i didn't have time even though I know we had like three weeks off, but I still didn't have time. <laughs> On Amazon Prime, you can find older Dick Tracy films that came out. Uh, I want to say they were like in the fifties, the forties. The yeah, the, he, uh, he was part of a he was part of a film serial in the in the forties. Um, well, there was there was some film serials, and then there were some just like some oh, actual yeah, yeah, yeah. standalone films. films. Yep, yep. Um, and I think Amazon Prime has a couple of them. Interesting. Uh, available for viewing if you're a Prime member. Okay. Um, that you can go back and take a look at. And at some point I will kind of take a look at them because I want to compare um, something that was probably a more serious take mm. that's closer to its time. Yes. And see like what we're looking at here because I'm like maybe Dick Tracy itself as an IP just doesn't allow a lot to really be artistically played with. It's, it's an interesting question because part of – Part of what I think made Dick Tracy work as a comic strip is what it fundamentally does not work as in in film, um, and and this is something that uh, we've we've touched on a little bit before. But it's like why do why do certain things work as comics, but like are just are unadaptable to screen, and and like we talked earlier a little bit about like the metaphor of the criminals are grotesque, right? Because you're not putting a clean face on crime. So much of the visual medium of Dick Tracy spoke to its own metaphor. Right. It, it was it was a comic. It was not meant to be taken seriously. Or I'm sorry. It was not meant to be taken literally, but it was meant to be taken seriously. And so this wasn't a literal interpretation of the mob violence of the of the, the 20s and 30s. It was a metaphorical one that you were supposed to glean those lessons from. And the visual style is part of what informed that metaphor. But that does not translate well on screen there there is a there's a loss of integrity um in in that style of storytelling for for whatever reason and, and maybe again it was just because warren Beatty was not capable enough to to handle things this way but um your your point about like those movies being closer to the actual golden age of dick tracy like yeah maybe they did understand better how to 
bring that feel to the screen because they were just nearer to what people liked about it in the first place. Yeah, the the complications with adapting something from comic to screen is really interesting to me because comics are basically storyboards. Like yes. half your work is done. Right. You even have um, your dialogue. It's already right, set to go. Right. You don't have to write a fucking script. Just <laughs> just lift it just off the paraphrase page. This. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so it's 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 almost like. I wonder if it's almost harder because you have an artistic vision in front of you and you have to make sure you're paying tribute to that, but you're not doing that. Yeah. And so you have to go hard and to make sure you're not doing that, but you are doing that. It makes it, your brain hurt a little bit. Yeah. I, I want to, I'll, I'll pull, I'll pull Batman in. Okay. Um, because Batman's got a very distinctive rogues gallery. They yes. are all very physically different and distinct. Yes. Um, and that has been translated over to the films side. And I mean, depending on what you're watching, I mean, go back and look at Jack Nicholson's Joker today. It looks ridiculous. It, it does. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no doubt there. Um, but like I, for whatever reason, I, it works. It works because of the world that Tim Burton sets up. This world is is not like it's real world adjacent. That's 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 an excellent point. Yeah, love yeah. that. And then uh and then uh Joel Schumacher <laughs> went a step further and we were like too hard in the paint. Too hard in the too, paint. Too, too hard in the paint. No, people love nipples on the the costume. On the, <laughs> no. They, <laughs> no, they, no, they no they don't, don't. Joel. No nobody like that. They don't. Uh, well, and in uh What's interesting, particularly about Batman, is the evolution of his villains, where, um, you know, in in the early Batman serials, um, much like Dick Tracy, you had grotesque looking villains that were still people, right? Like the Joker, Mm -hmm. the Penguin, the Riddler. um, These were even even Catwoman, still a person under all of it, right? Like still a a cat burglar, still a mob boss, still, you know, kind of a, like a a psychopath that, um, you know, is, is obsessed with puzzles. Uh, but you could see the human at the core, even though they, they looked sort of nutty. Batman would then like veer off of that and eventually go the direction of a man with a lot of money has to fight super beings. Um, like I think of poison Ivy, who is like, explain the human in poison Ivy. She's, she, she, there's nothing realistic about her. Even Mister Freeze is a difficult character conceptually to to place in in the real world. Um, and uh, I, I think that um, the blank in Dick Tracy almost hints at that, where there is something inhuman about the blank until we come to understand like it's it, it is just a mask, um, but it it sort of like begins to lean that direction of abandoning its, you know, grotesque looking, but real world villains and sort of hints at something more supernatural. Yeah. And I think it's just because you're in a lot of comic book stories, you're supposed to be able to kind of suspend the disbelief sure. a bit. Cause you're like, I am not in a real world. Right. Um, and I think maybe a movie like Dick Tracy doesn't, um, Kind of, kind of want to, wants to put you in a certain time and place, but yep. they won't specifically give it to you. Um, yeah, like here's the essence of a gangster story that doesn't really move us along as a society. Yeah, I, that, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I um, the the words that you use right there, um, I think very aptly describe what this movie is. It is the essence of a gangster movie. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's everything that you expect to be there. Without really, uh, other than the visuals, it does nothing challenging. It does nothing different. There's there's nothing about this film that if you didn't take it and immediately drop, you could take this script and you could drop it into a straight played 1930s gangster film, and uh, not to, to reuse this uh, this term, but there's no loss of integrity. I, I think that y- you you basically end up having exactly the same movie minus a striking visual element, and maybe it even works better because you don't have the kind of kooky visuals to it. That being said, I remember you telling me at some point over the past few weeks that like this movie has the distinct flavor of being made in the '90s. Yes, versus uh, coming out of like 
the 40s or whatever. Uh, this movie looks painfully early 90s. This is There's a very distinct art style from the early 90s that falls into that um, that sort of matte back painted backdrop. Um, it, it looks, like I said, this movie looks very Tim Burton to me. Um, it looks like The Mask. It looks like uh, uh, Roger Rabbit. Um, it, there, there is a strange homogeny to some of these early 90s films that are all based on uh, cartoon or comic strips. Um, and this movie looks, it, you cannot mistake it for anything other than a film made in 1990. Like it, it just absolutely does not transcend its own era, despite the fact that it's trying to, right? Like there, there's, there's something about Dick Tracy that wants to be timeless, and yet its visual style, striking though it may be, is so, is so absolutely dated and so clearly dated to its time period that this is one of the most '90s films I think uh, in existence. Like it's, it is impossible to um, see it in isolation from uh, the decade that it was made. I love throwing the mask out there because uh, the mask, yes, that 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 cityscape that it shows you at one point, it's very distinctly uh, painted. There's a lot of scenes that are very much you're like, oh, I'm on a studio back lot, right? Um, but in the mask, it just kind of enriches the film. Yeah, the mask rather works, than take away from it. The mask works differently, even though the mask is not nearly as dark a story as I think it's supposed to be like the the mask oh the comic source strip is, the source material the the mask comic book is hella dark it's very very dark yeah but that being said i think jim carrey's completely rubber band man over the top performance is what steals the show in that movie um and it it makes the mask work um because it is it, it, you have such a you, you have such a a like center of gravity in him um and and I just I I don't know that as much as I think um, Al Pacino gets close with Big Boy Caprice, Dick Tracy did not have something like that to to anchor it. Would you say that the mask excels at what Dick Tracy is trying to do? Yeah, I, because I, despite being set like the the mask takes place in a modern setting, but that's a movie that the the storyline everything fits. Very well. I mean, mystical mask powers notwithstanding, right. uh, fits very well in a gangster's era type yes. of Hollywood. Yeah, because it's about it a, is, it's about an everyman that get gets mixed up with um, like a, a crime syndicate, mm-hmm. and yes, easily could have. And Cameron Cameron Diaz's character, she's a breathless. She's a breathless she's, Mahoney. Yep. She is in a bad situation. She's she's a femme fatale, but she doesn't necessarily want to be. She wants to get out from. Uh, the mob boss's thumb who he's and he's trying to make his own play to disturb the 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 power base right uh and then you got the 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 cops on your tail as well i mean even the club club uh coco bongo in the mask mm-hmm. feels like it could have been something from a cagney film yeah and i mean it's a, it's a classic uh money laundering Front, right, you know that's that's. I guess if you were a mobster, that's what you did is you owned a club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, it makes sense too when you think about. I mean, just like the 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 theoretical like monetary angle of it, the margin on liquor and food is tremendous, right? Like mm-hmm. the markup on like you you sell a a shot of Jack Daniels nowadays for ten bucks, but the whole bottle costs you thirty. Right. And you've got what is like 25 shots in a bottle or something like that. So you have these tremendous margins that are very difficult to account for. So, of course, clubs work as as money laundering spaces like nobody knows, like how much uh, the the actual overhead. I mean, I say nobody knows. I I say that uh, with a a certain degree of sarcasm. But like, yeah, it it makes it makes sense why why these would be fronts. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, you know, in 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 the real world, like prohibition era was a was a big deal. It was, a, it was <laughs> you know, whether you were for or against, like it was a, it was a major, it was a major uh, problem. Uh, did you know uh, that American prohibition is part of what killed um, Irish whiskey in the early 1900s? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, because uh, Irish whiskey at one point had like several hundred different independent distillers around the country. Um, and uh, was a was a whole booming industry. Um, then there started to be some consolidation, and uh, 
some changing of the laws and they started shutting down these like basically moonshiners. Uh, and when there was nowhere in, nowhere to, to sell in Ireland, they turned overseas to the United States, which was another big importer of Irish whiskey and prohibition was going on and they had nowhere to sell it. And so uh, uh, Irish distilleries fell to only five in the early 1920s. Luck of the Irish indeed. Yep. All right. So this film, yeah. we got to ask our question of the season. Right. Um, does being the Dick Tracy IP help or hurt this film? Yeah, um, I don't think it does anything for it. Um, okay. I, I uh, the asking myself, would I like this movie more if it were not Dick Tracy? I I think that the answer is uh, no. Um, this movie is unfortunately so flat in so many ways that I don't know how you improve it other than you just need a better script. So it being a Dick Tracy movie, I don't think hurts it. I don't think it helps it either, though. Um, the only thing that it lends it is the visual element, which is not enough to save this movie. It's, I mean, it, it, it I think that um, the uh, like skybox of this film, if you had just a single image of Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy with the big yellow raincoat, you know, flown out behind him, firing a Tommy gun at the rogues gallery on the other side and them firing back. I think that is a great image. Put that in a museum. Everything else about this film, you the the visual style falls into the background so quickly because the movie is fundamentally uninteresting. So okay. um, that's that's my my take. Um, I don't think this movie can be anything but Dick Tracy. Oh, interesting. Okay, because of the stylings okay. of it. Um, so if you were just like, "Hey, crime movie, guy fighting a lot," you'd be like, "This is hella boring." Yeah, it's slightly less boring being Dick Tracy because of the, the, because of the visuals, because of the talking watch. Yep. <laughs> um, but there's nothing, you're right. It's very flat. There's nothing about Dick. Tra- Dick Tracy does not grow as right. a character. He is still the same damn person at the end. And this is, we're supposed to regard this as like a triumph in a way, you know, he does not bend. Right. Cause truth and justice is a pillar and it does not break no matter what. And you're like, "Mm, that's not very exciting though. It's not very interesting. It's not. And, and it does make it since we've talked about Batman a few times now, it makes me think about like the Batman movies. And I'm like, you know, Batman never makes, especially like in the Christopher Nolan films, he never breaks his fundamental rule. So why is he more interesting? And I think that what makes Batman interesting is that he learns more about his own mission and the criminal element along the way. He he like in the Dark Knight. He's forced to come to grips with the fact that there are that there are some men that just want to w- watch the world burn. That you can't reason with them. That there's no um, there's no hidden agenda because like he, you know, Ra's al Ghul in in Batman Begins was very much a conniving, you know, kind of like a Thanos character where like we need a great reset in order to restart society. The Joker wants nothing of the the kind. He just wants destruction. And so I think seeing Bruce Wayne come to grips with different aspects of the criminal element and therefore understand his own mission a little bit better, even though his approach doesn't really change, we do see some evolution of the character. Like you said, with Dick Tracy, what is what is the change? What's the growth that he goes through that that makes that makes this worthwhile? But that he's slightly tempted by <laughs> Madonna. <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't either. <clears throat> Test your heart. That's where it's at. She's fantastic. She's she's a great woman. She is a strong, independent woman. She is a strong, independent woman. Her her interactions with the kid, where he's always trying to like rip her off, that they she's their banter is great. Their banter yeah. is excellent. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because she's definitely not. She's definitely not his mom. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and she's not trying to be. <laughs> Uh, she's yeah it's it, it's deceptive because of that actress and the way she speaks and so like high and soft yep. uh, spoken but she's she's not a pushover no she's not she's, she's fantastic uh, I miss her um, that's Dick Tracy that's Dick Tracy we, yeah we got this, it out of the way this is a tough one to um, like because a lot of these movies I'm like you need to at least watch it right like you have to understand like what the film is with Dick Tracy I I think like watch the first 10 minutes and you've basically got the whole film um and uh and if you're interested in what you see in the first 10 minutes watch the rest but otherwise this is a tough movie to recommend because it is so 
bland. If you're someone that enjoys like all four 90s Batman films, then That's... like go ahead and watch Dick Tracy and don't give me shit about it. Yeah, because... it's <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, you, to be fair, um, this movie is somewhere in the direct middle between Batman and Batman and Robin. Like if you yep. if you were to find the perfect blend of those two styles, it is Dick Tracy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I would argue that The Shadow is a better film set in this time frame. I, um, I, I'm i always going to argue for The Phantom. The more, uh, the older I get, the more I truly enjoy The Phantom. I think it is, it's, it, yeah, it, it's fine. You're entitled to your wrong opinion. <laughs> no, the, the Phantom's okay. I still say The Phantom is, The Phantom is better than, than Dick Tracy. The Phantom is better than Dick Tracy, um, un, undeniably. So, sorry, Warren. That's just that's just how it goes. Yeah, them's the breaks, buddy. Um, next time, <laughs> you may call me Commander. Uh, <laughs> gotta figure out how to put in uh, like a GI Joe PSA moment. <laughs> we should do a GI Joe PSA moment at the end. Um, yeah, we're doing GI Joe next week. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna discuss uh, adaptations of toys. Yes. Yeah, um, and specifically uh, because, uh, especially if you're a fan, if you are a fan of GI Joe, like the the toy, the cartoon series, the GI Joe movie you're probably familiar with is the 1980s one, and that is not the one that we are going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about the Channing Tatum GI Joe vehicle, yeah, uh, from Magic 2009, Mike. 2009, yeah, Two, yeah, um, yeah, which is it's. I, I, it is perfectly forgettable. Oh my god! I actually—it's a shame. It's a dynamite cast. It's an excellent cast. Like the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in that movie and is, I think, badly used is a real shame. <laughs> like he's—he's he's one of my favorite dudes. Yes, uh, I enjoy his work, no matter like how left field it is. Um, I I enjoy watching him. Yes, also, uh, Brendan Fraser is is in it. Um, Brendan Fraser's like five minutes in that is probably my favorite part of the movie because he just like dips in and out. Yeah. And he's, and and I actually think he is so cool in that movie. I'm like, I fucking love this guy. (laughs) So that's our little teaser for uh, next week. We are going to do GI Joe, the rise of Cobra. Uh, And we we, are going to have a guest. Yeah. Because we have a good friend who is a GI Joe enthusiast. Yes, one of our, our very good buddies from back in the day when we all lived together, uh, Mike, is going to be joining us for the G.I. Joe episode. And like Josh said, Mike, um, and having like recently stayed with Mike like in the last month and seen the scope of his you collection. His stuff? Oh, my, oh my God. God. All his G.I. Joe stuff. It takes up three rooms. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> it takes it, up it, three rooms. It, it literally does, guys. Uh, we'll try to have him talk about the uh, the one like battle station that is like half the size of the room. Uh, yeah, I slept next to it. It's gigantic. <laughs> Did you have to be like kind of pretzel curled? Because... I mean, a little bit. It, it's, it's enormous. Um, <laughs> uh, all jokes aside, um, Mike is much more close to the meta. Uh, on G.I. Joe than I think either Josh and I are. So he'll be able to (laughs) offer um, a more... um, He'll probably have a strong opinion on the G.I. Joe movie. Uh, But he knows the source material much much better than I do. Exactly. And so he'll be able to talk about why Duke is not Duke um, and why Destro is not Destro uh, and and all of those things. And I'll just be like, well, this movie is pretty... uh." It is very eh. (laughs) So... (laughs) Uh, that's next week as always uh, thanks for listening guys yeah we will see you next week ladies and gentlemen